0: You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, friends, and welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. My name is Randy Volander, and we are looking at part four of our series, Miracles the Jesus Way. Have there been times in your life when a storm came out of nowhere? I mean, you completely did not see it coming And at 9 a.m., it's sunny skies, and by noon... It's dark as midnight, and you just don't know which direction you're going to go. This week, we talk about a story that is recorded in three of the Gospels, about how Jesus responds in the time of storms, and we talk a little bit about some of the prevailing storms of the day that we live in. This is from Sunday morning, July 11th, at The Bridge in Kansas City. But, you know, if you've been with us at all, you know, I'm a history buff, love history. And one of my favorite periods of history is the Revolutionary War. And I think the reason is I'm struck with the unlikelihood of so many people willing to lay down their lives for what they didn't even agree upon at the time that they were fighting for. If you would have gathered them all together and said, okay, individually, what's this all about? You might've got five or six different reasons. And the likelihood of people banding together and laying down their life without that idea of this is what it's for, is just interesting to me. It's hard for us to imagine the emotions that had to have been involved when it came to signing the Declaration of Independence. You ever think about this? Like they're all going, I don't even know if we're all signing this for the same reason. And the risk attached to it was huge. They're essentially committing treason against England. And of course, all of us can look back and go, well, that was a good idea. But in the moment they had to wonder at the time, it probably looked like insanity, watch for people doing crazy things. Often in time, they look brilliant. There were 56 people who signed the Declaration of Independence. Roughly, you know, a few more people than are gathered here in this room. Of those 56, five of them were captured by the British and tortured. Look around, five of us. Put it into context. Five were captured and tortured. Nine died in the war to come. Two of them lost sons. Two more had their sons captured and tortured. And at least a dozen of them had their homes destroyed for having signed that document. So signing this thing was a weighty moment. When it came to doing it, like dry mouths, heart palpitations, where's my meds? This is a little scary to do. And yet, as intense as it had to be, the introduction to the Declaration of Independence seems comically casual. Anybody know how it starts? You're all thinking, we the people. No, that's that's the Constitution. The Declaration of Independence starts with, when in the course of human events? It's just like, goes on to describe why they feel like they have no choice but to rebel against the only king they've ever known, but it starts out with, when in the course of human events? Kind of like, you know, this opportunity just kind of came up. Just, I wasn't looking for it, but when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary to overthrow the regime. Kelsey and I celebrated our 32nd wedding anniversary this week. which, and by celebrated, I mean, she ran errands with children and I was stung by a wasp. That was, a, that was the, the big excitement. And we, we did have coffee later, but it's just it's kind, of, kind of how the day went. I can tell you in 32 years of marriage, the storms of life happen in the course of human events. Just everyday things are going on. There's rarely an opportunity to prepare for it. You wake up and everything's going one direction. And by noon, it's gone 90 degrees to the left or the right. And you didn't see it coming. You respond out of what is in your heart in the course of human events. Some of us have felt that the storms that have rattled our world in the last 18 months would have never come. Didn't see them coming at all. There's a whole list of things now that you say, I've seen happen that 18 months ago, you'd say, oh, I've never seen that happen. I had a dream Wednesday night. Don't read too much into this as you some of you are gonna like trying to prophetically interpret it two sentences in, don't, it's not that big a deal. But I had a dream, I was at the corner of 95th and Nall, which is we travel through frequently. It's a very busy corner and the stoplights were out And because it is on the edge of Prairie Village, everyone is painfully polite, even to the point of no progress, okay? So they, normally when the stoplights are out in Prairie Village, it's no you go, no you go, and just nobody goes. Well, this was not that. It was not like Prairie Village with the power out. It was like Calcutta, India. There were cars jammed everywhere, and no one could go anywhere, and I looked around and it was right on the edge of chaos, which is hard to imagine in Prairie Village, but it was it was there. Imagine it's a dream. And in a panic, somehow I knew it had to do with who had the vaccine and who didn't. And that's not a pro or anti-vaccine message. I'm just telling you that's what I in the dream. There's this panic over people being forced to do something they didn't want to do, and I look around and just to protect my kids, I'll launch our car over somebody's lawn, and if you live at that corner, I'm sorry, but I tore your yard up and took off down the road. And you know, two years ago, you'd go, oh, that could never happen. Now some of you are like, "Yeah, that could happen. In the course of human events, we have seen bigger storms than that erupt. My point is not the vaccine. My point is not even the revolution. My point is you really cannot anticipate what might happen in the course of human events. But you can anticipate this. In the storms of life, when things go haywire, when the quietest intersection in town looks like Calcutta, India, when crazy things are happening, Jesus is not just present. He's actually active in the storm. And this morning, I want to look at uh, another couple of miracles of Jesus. We've been in a series talking about miracles the Jesus way and how people responded. And they seem to happen on a day like any other in the normal course of events. Just a little background here. We're going to be reading out of the book of Matthew. And the miracle we're going to focus on can be found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. Those are the three that kind of go together. If you've ever read the gospels all the way through, you read Matthew read Mark, you go, oh, I recognize some of that. You read Luke, oh, I recognize some of that. You get to John, you're like, John, were you, were you at the same place? Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on the stories. John focuses more on the person of Jesus and his relationship to God. That's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke record extensive Christmas stories. Nowhere have you ever gone to a Christmas pageant and they have read the gospel or, or the Christmas story out of the book of John. Why? Because this is the extent of the Christmas story in the book of John. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then he just moves on. He doesn't focus on the stories. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on the story that we're going to read, and Matthew gives us the richest details. So actually, that's where we're going to land. We will get to Matthew 14, but let's go to Matthew 8 and read four quick verses to kind of launch us into that. This is um, the pre-ramble, okay? Okay. Thank you, thank you. Courtesy laugh from the front row, pre-ramble. Matthew 8, 23 to 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. I have so many questions about Jesus sleeping in the boat. It had to be intentional, had to be. Son of God lays down, takes a nap. And they went and they woke him saying, save us Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O ye of little faith. And he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Do you understand the idea of a precedent? You ever hear the word precedent? Precedent used mostly in court. It is when something has been decided and so it doesn't have to be decided again. Judges like to refer to a precedent. If a previous judge has has, uh, written a ruling involving the case similar to what they're on, they will refer to the precedent. If you have a lot of kids, you rely on precedent. Mom, can I have juice? No, you had juice this morning. Then comes the next one can i have juice no there is a precedent no two cups of juice out you know there's the idea that there's a situation that has been established and that's the way it's going to be matthew 8 in a sense sets a precedent it demonstrates Jesus' relationship to the storm men marveled and they said even the winds and the sea obey him the things that we thought were uncontrollable he controls and he does it by talking to him Like, I don't know how I think you should call him the storm. Should Jesus have leaned over and like smoothed the water out with his hand? I I don't know how you would do that or how you would imagine him doing that, but he literally speaks to the storm and it settles. It's how he has always controlled the physical world, by his word. God sets the precedent and the precedent is this, Jesus is Lord over the storms that you are going to encounter. He controls the storm. The storm doesn't control him. And this isn't theory at this point to the disciples. This is established fact because they confess it with their mouths. They said, he did it. Even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, to be fair, this wasn't immediately fair to the disciples. Just like we interpret the revolution, looking back on it over time, when the storm starts to rage, Jesus does not appear to be too involved. He appears to be asleep. But once he starts to move everything changes and he controls the storm so with that precedent set jump forward with me to matthew 14 okay matthew 14. in matthew 14 the intensity of jesus's ministry is ramping up here significantly there's two main events that that preface the storm here in matthew 14. the first thing is john the baptist is beheaded for taking a stand for traditional marriage that's literally what happened. The king had taken his brother's wife into his home and was living with her. John the Baptist, as a prophetic voice, spoke truth to power, said, No, you can't do that. And in the chaos of it, he grants that woman one wish or through her child. And she said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter because he will not keep quiet about the immorality of us living together. So John the Baptist takes a stand for traditional marriage, loses his head. Next thing that happened is Jesus feeds 5,000 people which is a very small lunch. So this chapter is, I mean, there's not a dull point in this chapter. It just goes from one thing to the next. And with that, we come to Matthew 14, verse 22. And we will kind of teach our way through the next couple of verses. Immediately, he made the disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side while well, he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. While he was evening came, he was there alone. Here again we see the ebb and the flow of Jesus' ministry. Feeding five thousand people, setting the disciples off, and going away to be alone. Spending time with the Father by Himself and doing miracles back and forth and back and forth. And some of you if were here last week, you think I'm beating a dead horse on this. No, I'm beating a very live horse on this. That there is a truth to going back and forth to intimacy with God and walking out what Jesus would have you walk out. You can't just walk forever. You've got to go back and spend time with the father. I want to see the fullness of what Jesus promised. He said that we would do greater things. And I see no indication in scripture that we can do those greater things short of an intense and intentional prayer life with the father. Jesus needed to go pray so he could be fully who he was. How do we think we would ever be what he has called us to be without an intentional prayer life? Now, to be fair, While Jesus is in prayer, the whole boat trip seems to go down the tubes, okay? It's like everything falls apart while Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray, which is honestly why some of us struggle to pray. We have this idea that if we withdraw, all of these things are going to go wrong. I was telling you Wednesday, I was actually sitting out on our deck, just sat down to pray and kind of read through some passages for this week when stung by a wasp. And if it's not A wasp sting. It's a conversation that's playing through our head that distracts us. Or it's a temptation of our cell phone that's just within reach. Or it's the admission that maybe we stayed up a little bit late tonight, last night, and we're so tired this morning. But there are a million things that go haywire when we stop to spend time in prayer. And it robs us of the thing that allowed Jesus to be Jesus. And then we wonder, why can't I be like Jesus? Because we don't do the things that he did. Well, okay, some of you are, are getting very particular now. You're like, What's the formula? How many how many hours in prayer equal a miracle? Like how do we do this? Let's get down to brass tacks. Give me a prayer spreadsheet and I'll do whatever it takes. You're asking the wrong questions. It's not a formula, it's a heart posture. It's less like math and it's more like a riddle. Jesus told his disciples something in Matthew 11, verse 27, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. But then he goes on to say, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. He says, God and I have an intimate relationship. Nobody knows me but him. Nobody knows him but me. And anybody I invite into it. And so in prayer, he invites you into a knowledge of the Father that he has that you can't find any other way. Do you understand the invitation you just got? To know God in the way that Jesus knows God because he's offering a way for you in to do that? Jesus said, God the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father and nobody else is in on that unless I invite them in and now you're invited in. And we can't find the time to attend that. This is what is happening while Jesus is having his quiet time with the Father. He's up praying. And as he's praying, back to Matthew 14, verse 24, but the boat, the one Jesus was not on because he was in prayer, by the boat this time was a long way off from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. Now I'll just be very upfront. I'm not a boat guy, okay? I just, I like cars. I like motorcycles kind of like planes Uh, boats i don't know what's down there i don't i'm just not real big on boats i always say that my family immigrated in the early 1900s on bad boats from russia and germany and we got here and we said never again we're just going straight to the middle of the continent and so i'm not a boat guy but i really this frightens me a little bit the wind is pushing them off course and the disciples were crossing a water and they're getting smacked around a little bit by this time it says they were getting beaten by the waves Sounds like they were beaten off course. This is a picture of life in this world. The wind is against us. It really is. Has it ever felt like everything's against you in life? A lot of things are. Just to be very honest, that's not a very encouraging message, but it's true. Are you familiar with the phrase, the spirit of the age? The spirit of the age is one of those phrases that we all think is in the Bible but actually is not in most modern translations. It's not in there, but the idea is in there. There's a lot of things like that. The word Trinity's not in the Bible. The word Rapture's not in the Bible, but the ideas are there. But there is this idea of the spirit of the age or what the Germans would call the zeitgeist, the prevailing thought or the prevailing winds of culture. The reasons that the Nazis could move German culture so quickly is because they were saying things that many people were already thinking. And then when those people said, yeah, they would say just a little bit more and they leveraged the spirit of the age at the time against the people. Now again, that that phrase is not in the Bible, but there are scriptures that refer to things like it. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 refers to people following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Many of us are watching children, our children or our peers being buffeted by the storm that is generated by the spirit of this age. Getting pounded by the culture. Getting moved off course by what feels like every voice that they're ex- exposed to. The collective thought that they hear in song and in story and in film and maybe in school, it's so pervasive, it's so everywhere that we can't even see it. And its emphasis shifts over decades, but it moves how people think and how they live their lives. The modern era started about in Middle Ages, and it led to the Renaissance movement, and it valued intellect above all other things, and it elevated man's view of himself and the idea that man could find truth on, it, on his own. And the modern era lasted into our lifetimes. It produced TV shows with names like Truth or Consequences, because truth was a real thing and consequences followed truth. But about the middle of the 1900s, things started to shift. Most of us weren't aware of it until the 1980s, but we moved into a new era of thought that was no longer the modern era. And it was so new, and it was so different that they had to term it by what it was not. When things change very quickly, you don't have a name for them. If you'll remember when horses were replaced by cars, we called them Horseless carriages. We didn't know what it was. We just knew what it wasn't. It was like a carriage without a horse. When we moved out of the modern area era, 1950-1960, it became known as the postmodern era. It's like we didn't have a name for it. It's postmodernism. Postmodernism, as opposed to modernism, that said truth is 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 a real thing. You have to deal with it. Postmodernism questioned if truth even existed at all. Postmodernism in the 90s gave us TV shows like The X-Files that asked, is the truth, you know, the truth is out there somewhere, but they never ever found it. It raised questions about the existence of truth and it grabbed the culture. How can anything dare to be true? The battle that the Bible fought against modernism was, is this true? The battle that it's fighting against postmodernism, which is the spirit of the age right now is, can anything be true? Is anything true at all? 30 years now, 40 years into this postmodern age, postmodernism is finding its voice, and we find truth questioned at every turn, thing that every generation would have held to be true. Now we're saying, how do we know that's true? How many genders are there? How many do you want? What's really true? If you're a boy, you can now play girls' sports because you decided you were. Is any, any medical no no just you can just decide who, who's to say what what genders are let me give you a real time example a different issue of the war on on just the idea of truth about three weeks ago white house press briefing a, a reporter asked what you never hear in a white house press briefing which is a yes or no question you just you know it's just it doesn't make for good copy and so, but they asked a yes or no question, a reporter, I don't know who it was that asked, but I, I've, I've watched this half a dozen times, asked, does the president believe that a 15-week-old unborn baby is a human being? Like, that's, that's not a hard question, especially if you tell people to believe the science. That's, that's a yes or no. Or if you just don't think so, and you could say no, but like that shouldn't take much thought. Do you believe that a 15 week old unborn child is a baby or not, or a human being? The press secretary's response instantly was, are you asking me if the president supports a woman's right to choose? He does. Like, no, actually that wasn't the question that was asked. The question he was asked Do you think it's a, a human, no, well, you can ask whatever question you want. I'm going to answer this. Why? Because who's to say what truth is. And if you know, it makes your heart beat a little faster because I said it about the president, it's not like the other side does any better. TV networks are being built on the idea of there are people looking for a specific truth and all you have to do is tell them what they want to hear and they'll buy the advertising. The battle we're fighting, the prevailing winds against us in this culture, the storm of the age is this postmodern idea of is anything true and it knows no bounds. And we, in some cases are getting battered by it ourselves and we're getting blown off course. There is as much confusion in the church about what is truth as there is on college campuses. And where there is clarity, you almost always find somebody angry. The winds of the spirit of the age are blowing hard on our boats And it is reflected in how we allot our time and our finances and our effort because we are beginning to believe the wind and believe the storm. You know what the disciples are wondering about in the middle of the storm? Where's Jesus? (laughs) Like we left Jesus on the hillside to have his devotions and here we are getting blown completely off course. They had to wonder, did Jesus decide to catch the next boat, or why did he leave us out here? Absolutely not. Remember, he controls the winds and waves. The precedent's been set. There's not a storm in life that appears, whether it's in your personal life or your health or something as big as the spirit of the age, there is not a storm in life that he doesn't have authority over. How many storms, when you think about it, in your life has he shown up in and helps you through. Like how many things, even in the last five years that you thought I saw no way forward. And there was a way that I didn't imagine. There is precedent in your own life, in our own personal life. I could tell you story after story, as dark as it seemed that he always appears when the timing is right. I have seen the precedent walked out in our lives. Yet often we find ourselves in the boat going, where's Jesus? The spirit of the age that is railing against truth right now will not have the final word. It may appear like it does for a while, but the truth will have its day. There's a quote that is attributed to Charles Spurgeon, although there's no record of him saying it. It's also attributed to CS Lewis and St. Augustine. There is no record of any of them saying anything close to it. Uh, uh, one of them got close, but, but this is the quote. And I think it's just so true that everybody wants somebody to have said it. Truth is like a lion. You don't need to defend it. You just need to let it out. The spirit of truth will come against the spirit of the age. And the day will come when all of the questions that our culture is batting back and forth, there will be a solid answer for. The storm we're in now may be different than the one we were in last time, and it'll be different from the one to come. But one thing is constant, and one thing is variable. The constant is that Jesus is always present in the storm. He's in the last one, he'll be in this one, he'll be in the next one. In the modern age, they saw evangelism crusades with Billy Graham providing a very rational, truth-based understanding of the gospel. Hundreds of thousands, even millions of people came to Jesus in the modern age. In the postmodern age, Jesus will have his way. He will raise up people who speak the language of the postmoderns and it will not be done with well-spoken arguments. It will be done with signs and wonders that move their hearts. You wanna know truth? Boom, healing. Deal with that. Our kids are looking for an experience. They don't wanna just be told what God is like. My kids came home last night. My nine-year-old had been rocked. He said, Dad, I felt God. Do you think that little nine-year-old girl is ever gonna go back to just normal? Heaven help us if we provide her a context of normal and tell her this is what it means to follow Jesus. She'll check out fast truth will find a way to reach each generation. That's that's the constant. The variable is this, how do we respond? Will we succumb to the storm caused by the spirit of the age or will we lean into Jesus? Back to Matthew 14. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night is like between three and six in the morning. Jesus comes rolling in at 4.30 in the morning. It's like, Jesus, you could have been in the boat when we left. You could have came at midnight. You could have come whenever. He comes on time. And in the case of the disciples, the fear of the storm had such a grip on them that they really weren't sure it was Jesus when he did show up. Verse 26 says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. When your life demands a response of faith, the spirit of the age will always press you towards fear. If the enemy can get you to live in fear, he knows you're not able to exercise faith. And even with Jesus right there, you might go down. Let me just tell you, fear is not your friend. And some of you have lived in fear and called it wisdom. You know, if you're standing in a clearing and a bear runs out of the woods at you, It is wisdom to run, that's not fear. Now you might be afraid, but it really is wisdom to run. It's a good thing to do. But fear alone cripples us. Fear locks our knees and we don't run and we still get eaten. Life calls for faith. And Jesus speaks a different word over this storm that we find ourselves in. He seeks to neutralize their fear that has gripped their heart and calls them to walk a walk of faith. You're know, like, Randy, but you don't know the storm that we're in. That's true, but the only thing you see is the storm you're in, and Jesus is right there. Second Corinthians 5, 7 tells us, we walk by faith and not by sight. You can't even rely on your eyes when you're in the middle of a storm. You have to rely on precedent. You can't even rely on how it looks That's how you fall into acting out of fear and calling it wisdom. No, you've got to rely on the precedent that he set that he controls the storm. There are things that are good and true that are working in your favor that you don't ever see till the storm is over. There are angels working on your behalf. And more important than that, Jesus is advocating for you. He started that work when he went to the cross. And it was the beginning of his missional effort to reach you. And now Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for you. Jesus is praying for the storm that you're in. And he's praying not just that you would be saved from hell, but that you would be saved from the storms of life. Postmodernism, that prevailing spirit of the age says we can't know the truth. Biblical faith says, even when I don't see it, the truth prevails. He is a man and he is coming for me. Matthew fourteen twenty-seven. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. If you get one thing out of this thing this morning at all, get this, when the storm rages, fear cripples you. And his word to you is not, yeah, you probably should be afraid. His word to you is have faith Turn away from fear. You'll begin to think clearly. You'll begin to perceive his presence. You'll be able to act in boldness. Fear will lock your knees and the bear eats you anyway. We need to be aware of the spirit of the age, but we don't need to wave the white flag. We don't need to surrender our kids or our grandchildren to that spirit that is blowing the whole world off course. Doesn't have to be that way. One last bit on this story, and then we want to celebrate communion. I asked Zion and Lima and and Josiah would join me. This is the part that Matthew includes that Mark and Luke do not. And I don't know why, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna inquire, what was the deal? But Matthew includes this little tag onto the story that seems kind of important. Verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, If it is you, Peter's still like hedging his bets. (laughs) If it's you, Lord, command me to come join you on the water. And he said, come, so Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. That would be a great ending to this story. Life is rarely that simple. Verse 30 says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. In a cruel world, Jesus would have said, had your chance, shouldn't have looked away. Can you imagine? Lesson learned, don't take your eyes off Jesus. No, the lesson is even when you slip and fall, he pulls you back up, he controls the situation. There will never be a time in your life where you do not need him, even when it feels like you're walking on water. When Peter struggled with fear, he was smart enough to know where to go for help. Jesus reached out immediately, the Bible says, took his hand, took a hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, second storm in a row, truly you are the son of God. Radical dependence on Jesus is the way through the storm. I wanna take a moment and receive communion this morning. Pat, I wanna ask you if you would pass out the emblems that are just there to your right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. No one knows God but his son. And no one knows the son but the father. And yet in his benevolence and kindness, he invites us into that knowledge of him. When we celebrate communion, we celebrate his death on the cross that opened the door for us to have fellowship with God and to experience peace in the storm. Stand with me for a moment as they continue to pass these out. Let's just take a few minutes to just enter into worship before we receive the emblems. Father, we love you. Father, to be invited in to this relationship, to be asked if we want to be a part of your very relationship with your Father. It's an honor, Jesus. We say yes. We say yes. Jesus, we Sing it to him. We love you, Jesus. You are the one our hearts adore you. Jesus, we love you. We love you, Jesus. We love you. Just begin to express your love to him. You're good, Jesus. You are good in the middle of the storm, Jesus. Father, we lean into faith and we say no to fear. We love you, Jesus. Father, by the miracle that you did in giving your life to for us, allowing your body to be broken, your blood to be spilled, you gained authority over every wind and wave that might blow. Scripture says,